So we are indeed, as was just uh, prayed, working our way through the book of Daniel. Daniel is a well-known book of the Bible and um, well-loved, and we are in a section that is perhaps the most well-loved of the entire book of Daniel. It's one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible, one that I've loved since a boy. If you recall, if you've been here uh, from the beginning, uh, Daniel and uh, his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, they were, uh, of course, had Hebrew names, which we'll talk about in a little bit, before they were exiled. But all four of these boys, along with about probably 75 other or so uh, of the cream of the crop, were exiled, taken out of their home in Judah, and taken a thousand miles away to the land of Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. And if you've been here, you know that they've really uh, been immersed completely in Babylonian culture. They were given new names. They were uh, sent away for three years to a Babylonian university and taught all about Babylonian ways. And uh, we saw that in chapter 2 that Daniel was given uh, by God the ability to not only state but also interpret a dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had had. It was a dream that terrified him. It was the one that, that he needed to know the answer to. And Daniel, uh, by explaining what the dream meant, explained to Nebuchadnezzar that, that of this statue that he dreamt about, that he was the head of gold. And then in chapter 3, we see that Nebuchadnezzar then decided to create an idol for himself, that he designed it to be 90 feet tall, and that he made this entire thing entirely of gold in order to push back against the dream and the interpretation that Daniel had given him. He designed this idol and set it out in the middle of this plain in Dura, and he commanded that everyone in that realm, in that area, bow down before this 90-foot idol. Think of it as an obelisk, 90 feet tall by 9 feet wide. And that was where we ended last week, that Nebuchadnezzar had commanded and was trying to coerce by threats of punishment, in fact, severe threat of death, uh, that everyone should bow down and worship. Which brings us to our passage today. Daniel chapter 3, beginning at verse 8, we'll go all the way through to the end. Uh, If you have a Bible with you, I, as always, encourage you to follow along as I read, but also as we go through the sermon, we'll be looking at different phrases and words. If you don't have a Bible with you but would like to use one, you can find it in the chair in front of you underneath on page 739, and it'll go into 740. says this, therefore at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. 
There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God? Who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent, and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire. They are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other god who is able to save and rescue in this way. And the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Almost seems a pity to preach after, <laughs> after that. <clears throat> well, the text 
makes clear that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these three men, when the image was put up, when the idol was lifted up and the, and the sound of all the instruments played, that, that these three men obviously did not bow down and worship. But one of the questions that comes to mind as you read this is, what about Daniel? Nothing is said of him. And so we wonder, did Daniel in fact bow down and worship the idol? Well, again, the text doesn't say one way or the other. I think if we read the entire book of Daniel, and, and even, even we don't even have to go that far, all we have to read is the first couple of chapters to see that Daniel was as committed as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to the God of Israel. No, I don't think, uh, and, and I don't think any scholar believes that, that Daniel was one of the ones that bowed down. When we ask, where was Daniel, it's probably answered in, at the end of chapter 2. If you go back to chapter 2, at the very end, after Daniel has interpreted the dream, we see that uh, Daniel is given high honors, that an offering and incense is offered up to him, and that the king gives him these great honors, many gifts, and he makes him the ruler over the whole province of Babylon. It is upon Daniel's request that these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who did not interpret the dream, who weren't given these great gifts, that they were also kind of carried in Daniel's wake and given their positions of authority and prestige over the province of Babylon. And what we see at the very end of chapter 2 is that though Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Daniel remained at the king's court. And so what a lot of scholars conjecture is that Daniel remaining at the king's court was in a sense immune to this whole thing, that, that he wasn't one of the ones who was expected to go and bow down, that in some way he was uh, doing his work there rather than out here in the plain where all these other people were. Or perhaps some of them say maybe he was away on a diplomatic mission somewhere for Nebuchadnezzar. And some of them even suggest, well, maybe Daniel uh, didn't bow down. Maybe he was seen, but that he was too powerful to challenge, that, that maybe these Chaldeans that came forward didn't want to risk uh, raising anything against Daniel. No matter, we do see that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, according to the text, are singled out. They are all alone. These Chaldeans, you might remember, are the astrologers from chapter 2. They were the yes-men who ended up being fakes, who basically told Nebuchadnezzar, look, we don't really know what we're doing. Uh, you asked us to tell, us, tell you what the dream was. No one has that power, and Nebuchadnezzar threatened to in fact, he sent someone out to kill all of them and to render their households a dung heap. It was only through Daniel's intercession that these men were rescued at all. And it says that they maliciously accused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I would imagine that they are doing so because they want to reverse everything. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were, after all, teenage Jewish exiles who were brought over uh, only a few years ago and suddenly thrust into positions of power over these men. 
and now they have a chance to get back at them. Notice when they approach the king, they approach him and lay it on thick. Oh, king, live forever. King, we love you. You are the true omnipotent and everlasting king that you think you are with this idol. You, king, stupidly, promoted certain Jews over the affairs of the province of Babylon, and, and they pay no attention to you, O king. They don't serve your gods or or worship the golden image that you have set up, and, O king, we do. Now, I think if Nebuchadnezzar were thinking clearly, I don't think this would have had any impact on him, or certainly not the impact that it had. I think he would have seen through their stupid little charade. He would have remembered that these men have no abilities. He would have remembered that they had been yes men telling him what he wants to hear for years, that that's why he was so angry with them in the first place. He would have remembered that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were his star students at the University of Babylon, that they were head and shoulders along with Daniel above all of the other students that were there, and that they have served him loyally and faithfully all of this time in the position that they were. Remember, again, I'm Again, the text doesn't say this, but I'm assuming that because they were over the affairs of the province of Babylon, they probably had something, if not a lot, to do with the making of that idol that they don't bow down to. See, if he, if he was thinking clearly, he would have clearly seen what the Chaldeans here were trying to do. The problem is that idolatry blurs our clear thinking. Idolatry gets us off on horrible tracks. Idolatry leads us to do crazy and foolish things because idolatry is crazy and foolish. Idolatry makes no sense because idolatry is serving and worshiping the creature rather than the creator. Scripture speaks of the foolishness of idolatry in Isaiah 44, the next chapter after the chapter we heard read earlier. Isaiah in in chapter 44 talks about a man who chops down a tree, and he says he takes part of this wood and he warms himself with it. He kindles a fire with it. He bakes bread with it, and then he takes the other half and he makes a god with it, and worships that God. Over half, he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. He he warms himself and says, aha, I'm warm. And the rest of it, he makes into a God, his idol, and he falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it. He says, deliver me, for you are my God. Says, he doesn't consider He doesn't have the discernment to say, wait a second, half of it I burned in the fire. I roasted meat. And and shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He doesn't see what he's doing. It's foolishness. John Calvin, lest we think that we are beyond idolatry, lest we think that because we're not making 90-foot obelisks of gold, and bowing down to them that we have no idolatry within us. 
Calvin says that the heart of everyone is an idol factory. And I ask you this morning, what idols do you have in your life? I would wager to think that the first thing that came to your mind is your idol. Whatever it is that you just thought of is it. You know, idol doesn't have to be a a bad thing in and of itself. Preachers all the time make preaching sermons an idol. Uh, We can make our kids an idol or our spouse an idol or finding a spouse an idol. There are a million ways that we can lift up and make something in the created realm an idol. And those idols, if we pursue them, oftentimes lead us to do foolish and crazy things. I know of a pastor, former pastor, he's now been defrocked, former pastor in the PCA in Maryland who was uh, preaching excellent sermons, uh, pursuing a PhD in New Testament, who walked into his sessions meeting one evening and announced to all of his fellow elders that he was leaving his wife, that he was leaving all of his children, and that he was leaving the pastorate, and that he was forsaking his God for another woman. Imagine the destruction that this man welcomed into his life because of the idolatry of adultery. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't thinking clearly, obviously. And so he reacted in the way an idolatrous megalomaniac would. When told about these men who are great servants of his that that just don't bow down to this image that he just decided was a good idea that everyone should bow down to, rather than overlooking it or deciding maybe I have gone too far, no, he's infuriated. Now, when you think about how intimidating this must have been for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that alone must have been intimidating enough to make someone question whether or not they're making the right decision here. I mean, if you have the most powerful man in the world burning with rage and fury at something that you just did, with all of the power at his disposal to kill you instantly, that would be fairly intimidating, I would say. But notice, remember also, they have positions of great privilege that have been graciously given to them by Nebuchadnezzar. They, they didn't even really do anything to earn this. I mean, they, again, followed in Daniel's wake, but they didn't do any kind of interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and yet they've been given these positions of privilege. They also, by Jeremiah's instruction, have been given the instruction to be good citizens of Babylon to try to serve those who have been placed over them. Most intimidating of all, of course, is the very real threat of certain and excruciating death staring them in the face, which they knew about because it was a part of the original threat. Now, I don't know (coughs) if these guys dealt with any kind of tossing and turning in their hearts and minds before going to meet Nebuchadnezzar. But, I mean, again, Scripture doesn't tell us. Uh, We do have their incredible statement of faith that we will see. But prior to that, 
when they were told, bow down or else be burned, I would assume, given the fact that they are human beings, that they wrestled with that decision. There are many ways that we can rationalize our sin and our rebellion against God. We can rationalize our idolatry. I can imagine some of their rationalizations. I mean, after all, God is the one who brought us here. God has brought us here. I don't know why, but we're in this position because of Him. And furthermore, He's the one that gave us these positions of prestige and authority and influence. I mean, if we die what good are we going to be to our fellow exiles if, if we stay here safe and sound in this position of influence who knows what legislation we can have passed who knows what what ways we can try to get laws passed or or make it easier for our fellow exiles maybe the one that they wrestled with the most is hey it, it's just it's just a physical exercise it's it's just getting down on our hands and knees. Look, we'll treat it as a morning stretch. In our hearts, we will still worship the one true God. What difference does it really make? I don't know. Again, I don't know what wrestlings they have, but, but I would think that, that when they came into the presence of this raving mad lunatic, that they began to have them at that point. Notice again, just how utterly alone they are. We already know that presumably they're the only three out of a huge mass of people who did not bow down initially. And now they've been bound out of all the people and hauled off to Nebuchadnezzar to face him. And when they arrive, notice, of course, that he calls them, as he always would have, by their Babylonian names. And again, if, if they ever needed to know that they weren't alone, if they ever needed to know that, that God was with them, it would be now. Only where is God? They've been hauled in. They're surrounded by Babylonian officials and soldiers. And then Nebuchadnezzar says, come here, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And of course, they lost their Hebrew names a long time ago. Hananiah which means Yahweh is gracious, has been changed to Shadrach, the command of Aku. Mishael, who is like God, to Meshach, who is like Aku. Azariah, God is my helper, to Abednego, servant of Nebo. Even their names tell them that they are alone and forsaken. If there's anyone who can feel at this moment that their God was dead and that the Babylonian gods ruled, it would have been them. And notice just how much pressure is put on them. I, I would imagine the temptation would be great to lie. I mean, after all, you're lying to a pagan king who destroyed the temple in Jerusalem and one who has no love for the God of heaven. And, and when Nebuchadnezzar asks, he you have to give him credit. I guess he could have had them hauled off and thrown in the fiery furnace immediately upon the Chaldeans' proclamation, but instead he calls them in and gives them a second chance. Is this true? 
Yes, and is it true? Now, in the age of no iPhones, no YouTube, no Instagram, no way of recording what they did or did not do, it's their word against the Chaldeans. How tempting would it have been for them to say, no, it isn't? No, King Nebuchadnezzar, we, we, of course we, we honor your gods. These men are liars. They hate us and they want our positions. I can imagine at that point, maybe Nebuchadnezzar has the Chaldeans hauled off and thrown into the fiery furnace. Notice, he gives them this temptation of choice. I, I would think that at this point, the, the, the tension and the stress and the temptation is ratcheted up to the nth degree. He says to them, look, whether it was true or not before, I just need to see you do it this one time. When, when the trumpet sounds, when the choir begins, fall down this once. And notice his words, well and good. If you do it this one time, all will be forgiven. You will be released from your bonds, you will be sent back to your positions of privilege and power, and you won't go into the burning, fiery furnace. Don't do it, and you will immediately be burned alive. It's your choice, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, here's what's interesting. <clears throat> I think that Nebuchadnezzar then makes his fatal error. If what he expected for them was at that point, under that pressure, capitulation and obedience and rebellion against their God, I don't know, again, we can hypothesize how the story would have gone else, you know, given any other circumstance. But as I thought about it this week, I thought, look, Nebuchadnezzar could have simply left it at that. He could have simply said to them, if you don't bow down to me now, you will be thrown into the fiery furnace. What's your choice? Maybe they would have, maybe they wouldn't. He, he could have even said, if he, if he wanted to say something a little bit more, he could have even said, look, who in all of Babylon can rescue you from my hand? But in the providence of God, at a time when they felt perhaps more alone and isolated and surrounded by enemies than they have ever felt in their life. Nebuchadnezzar in the providence of God throws in one final statement. He says to them, and who is the God who can deliver you from my hands? And in that moment, for the first time in this entire account, the God of Israel is brought to mind. He had been buried up until that point. And, and by simply asking that question, Nebuchadnezzar makes a grave error. Because all of us in this room, when we heard that read, immediately thought of God. What would they have thought of? You see, by asking that question, the question itself immediately brings to mind the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who delivered Israel from the might of Pharaoh. Sim simply by asking the question, it, 
It brings to mind the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who delivered Israel from the might of the Philistines by asking the question. It brings to mind the the account of the Assyrians who essentially said the same thing when they had 185,000 troops amassed to decimate Jerusalem. And they said to Hezekiah and to the people listening, we're coming in here, and who is the God who can deliver you out of our hands? And that night, the angel of the Lord struck down 185,000 Assyrians. God said they will not shoot one arrow in here. By asking the question, it brings to mind what we heard earlier in the passage, Isaiah 43. Now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name, you are mine. And so when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. They will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. The flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You are precious in my eyes, and I love you. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. See, Nebuchadnezzar made a grave error because before that question, this was solely a contest between King Nebuchadnezzar and three lowly servants. And as soon as he asked that question, he turned it into a contest between him and the God of Israel. And as soon as it was turned into that, it was no contest. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego notice it's a subtle thing, but notice, first of all, that when they answer him, they don't even refer to him as king. O Nebuchadnezzar, they call him king later, but at this point, In the discussion, they know who the true king is, and they know it isn't him. What did God say about Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar, this great and mighty king who thinks of himself as the most powerful man in the world, who's conquered everything and and is now reigning over a land that he conquers, a, a land that he considers himself God over, what does the Bible say about him? What did God say about him? Jeremiah 27, God says, now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. He is my servant. I've given him the beasts of the field to serve him. You see, Nebuchadnezzar, even though he doesn't know it, he thinks of himself as the king, and he's really only the servant of Yahweh. God, their God, is the true king, not Nebuchadnezzar. Now notice that uh, they say, look, we have no need to answer you in this matter. We really don't have to say anything. Our actions can speak louder than words, but we'll give you an answer. And notice that they start out saying, if this be so. (coughs) Now, there's 
some discussion among scholars as to what they mean by that, if this be so. The grammar here is a little tricky, and so it could be that they're talking about if this be so, meaning if we are thrown into the furnace. If it be so that you throw us into the furnace, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace, and He will. The, the problem there a little bit is, is in what they say after that, but if not. So, if they're saying, if we are thrown in, our God will be able to save us, but if we're not thrown in, they could be saying that, but another option is they're saying, if our God is able to deliver us from the furnace, He will. But if He's not able, see, there's the problem. If, if, if they're saying if he's able, if they're talking about his ability, that means that they're questioning his ability, and they're also furthermore saying our God might not be able to deliver us from the furnace. See, what makes the most sense, I think, that's <coughs> what a number of scholars believe, is that what they're saying here is if our God is willing, if our God is willing to deliver us from the furnace, he will. We know he's able. We don't know if he wants to. He may want us to go through the furnace and be killed. See, the question isn't God's ability. The question is God's willingness. And this makes all the difference in the world, really. You see, because the one thing that idolatry doesn't have, go- I mean, it, it has a million things not going for it. The one thing I guess it has going for it is is that your God does whatever you want him to do because he's nothing. I mean, you really are the God. But what it doesn't have going for it is that idols are not God. And you see, the true God, for God to be God, he does what he wills. He doesn't do what we will. He does what he wills. We do in our lives, and this world does, and history does what he wills it to do. And so by saying, if God is willing to deliver us, he can. They're speaking about the true God. They're speaking truth that their God is sovereign, that he is in heaven, and that he does whatever he pleases, and that he might choose for them to die a martyr's death, which would have been an amazing witness and something that the church could look back on for millennia and marvel about. By acknowledging that he may not be willing, they're pointing out the fact that their God is not made by human hands, that they were made by him. One scholar says this, biblical faith does not predict God's ways, it simply holds to God's word. See, if we could boss God around, If he did owe us everything we ever wanted, then he wouldn't be a God worth worshiping. They are recognizing that God does not owe them. God is merciful, God is gracious, but mercy and grace are not owed. We are owed justice. We are given mercy and grace. We don't want God to give us justice. Because if he gives us justice, if he gives us what we deserve, 
If he gave them what they deserved, then they would be given the burning, fiery furnace. And so they say, if it be so, our God whom we, are, whom we serve is able to deliver us, and he will deliver us if he wills. But if not, if he is not willing, even if he's not willing to deliver us, be it known to you that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Many scholars pointed out, and I didn't know this uh, to my shame, uh, given that I was a history major, but scholars point out that, uh, that, that in June 1940 at Dunkirk, you may have heard of this before, the British Expeditionary Force uh, was sent there to stem the Nazi advance into Belgium and France. And what happened was they had been pushed steadily back to the sea. This is according to Chuck Colson. A pall fell over England. Hitler's armies were poised to destroy the cornered Allied army. But as the British people waited anxiously, a three-word message was transmitted from the army at Dunkirk. The message that they sent was, and if not. That was it. And if not. The British people instantly recognized what the message meant. Even if we are not rescued from Hitler's army, we will stand strong. And it sent that great uh, rescue mission uh, that, that you've seen if you've seen the movie or read about it. I find that incredible that, that in 1940, the British people were so steeped in their Bibles that they would have known, and if not, is from this account of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But after they answer, we see in verses 19 through 23... <laughs> that the king has the furnace heated seven more times than it was usually heated. Seven times more. Hotter, hotter, hotter. Keep making it hotter. Which seven times, it may just be meaning that it's as hot as it can be heated. Now, these furnaces were no doubt the furnaces that were used to build this idol, to, you know, melt the gold and, and, and everything else that they did for this idol. And so it is interesting that, that in the creation of the idol, Nebuchadnezzar was fine having the, the furnaces heated as hot as they needed to be, but in the defending of the idol, in the punishing of somebody who doesn't bow down to the idol, he makes it hotter, seven times as hot, even though it's going to burn them up faster. Again, we, we see here the foolishness and stupidity that results in idolatry. The text says that because the king's order was urgent and because the furnace was overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He lost some of the, his mighty men in his army, probably some of his most trusted men that he sent to, to grab these guys. And now because of his stupidity and his out-of-control rage, he's lost some of these men. And it reminded me of David. David, in, in, in his sinful and overwhelming passion for Bathsheba and to cover up the adultery that he had committed, he had one of his mighty men, Uriah the Hittite, killed in order to save his own skin. Notice just how many times how many times the text, this whole text, goes out of its way to specify that there were three men and only three men? 
the entire time. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those names are listed in this short span 13 times. And we see here at verse 23 that it says specifically, and these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the fiery furnace. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was expecting to see some fireworks for sure. He was expecting to see screaming, probably clawing at the door. What he saw astounded him. It's amazing that Nebuchadnezzar was so astounded he had to do a double take. He, he had to ask his counselors, we did send only three men in there, right? And they say, true, O king. Nebuchadnezzar, stunned, he, he says, but, but you see, I see four men in there, unbound and unhurt in the midst of the fire, and the fourth man is like a son of God. See, when you consider what God could have done here, I mean, there's many things God could have done. God could have, as we said, chosen to uh, let Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego die a martyr's death, and it would have been just, it would have been fine, and it would have been something, again, that, that we would still be talking about today. But even if God wanted to rescue them and save them, He could have done it in almost an infinite number of ways. I mean, consider, he could have had Nebuchadnezzar not even set the idol up in the first place. These guys could have served him faithfully and, and never even been presented with death their entire lives. He, he could have had Nebuchadnezzar suffer a heart attack and kill him on the spot, but before even issuing this edict, he, he could have had something happen to the mighty men, or he could have had some kind of force field put up in front of the fire to, that kept them away, almost like the walls of the Red Sea. He, he could have blown up the furnace. He, he could have had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego carried away on chariots of fire. Who knows? We see all of these things happen in Scripture. The, the number of ways God could have chosen to rescue them almost seems limitless. But what's interesting is that He chose to not to rescue them from the fire. He rescued them in the fire. That's how He chose to rescue them. And I, it's, it's a great picture for us because, Christian, God does not promise us, even when we're faithful to Him, that He will keep us from the fire. 1 Peter 4 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange is happening to you. God doesn't always rescue us from the fire, but as we sang earlier, when through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. You see, Christian, it, it was God Himself who met them in the fire. It is God who meets us in the fire. You see, who, who was this fourth man? Who was the fourth man? Nebuchadnezzar tells us who it is. He, he says, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent His angel to deliver His servants. Now, of course, it could be 
we know that there are angels of God. We see them all throughout Scripture. We see them in the New Testament. Michael, Gabriel, other angels. We'll see angels with Daniel in the lion's den. But you see, I am convinced that though it could be an angel of God, I believe it was the angel of God. I believe that that day, in that furnace, it was the pre-incarnate Christ who saved them from that fire, the angel of God. And when Nebuchadnezzar came near the door and saw the burning fiery furnace, he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out. And notice the detail here. The the hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. There was not even any smell of smoke on them. Daniel picks what you would think would be the most obvious things that would get damaged in a burning fire. I mean, obviously, they would have been killed almost instantly going in that furnace. But even if you want to imagine them stumbling out of the furnace, their clothes burned off of them, soot all over them, and and barely alive, no. In fact, they, they come out as though nothing had happened to them. Not even the smell of fire. In other words, they, they didn't escape by the skin of their teeth. No, in, in fact, they were so utterly saved by this mysterious fourth man, this son of God, that they did, didn't even smell of smoke. It, it was as though there was no trace of judgment on them at all. That every trace of judgment had been removed. Now, what's interesting to me is who comes out of the fire? There were three men who went in, and there were three men who came out, and only three men. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come out. Who didn't come out of the fire? The fourth man. You know, I know this is a picture I know this is a type and a shadow and maybe a foreshadow of Christ, but, you know, if you didn't know any better, you might think that it was this fourth man, this Son of God who absorbed all of the judgment and gave his life for theirs. You see, it was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who said to the king, look, if this be so, And what they were saying there is not if God is able, but if He's willing. If He's willing, we know that He can deliver us from the furnace. They knew He was able. The question is, is He willing? And years later, this now incarnate Son of God said the same thing. Years later, this incarnate Son of God prayed, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Please remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Jesus knew that his father was able. His father was able to deliver him from the fiery furnace of divine judgment from sin. But was he willing? And the answer that God gave to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was yes. I'm willing to deliver you from the fiery furnace. And the answer that he gave to his son 
was no. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were saved from the fires of judgment, brothers and sisters, but our precious Jesus, the Lamb of God, gave his life in the fires of judgment. As the pre-incarnate Son of God absorbed the fires of the furnace that day, so the incarnate Son of God absorbed the rires of wrath that God had for us. And the amazing thing about it is that he absorbed it so fully that there is not one trace of judgment left for us. It has all been removed. Christian Nebuchadnezzar says it better than any of us can. There is no other God who can save in this way. Because there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are so grateful for this message. We're so grateful for this reminder. This reminder of what you did all those years ago, Lord, when you spared these three men. And Father, we're so grateful for what you did for us on the cross. As you sent your Son to absorb the wrath for us. Father, please make us, Lord, by your Spirit, understand the sacrifice that was given that we might rejoice that no judgment is left for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.